God, we live in a culture in a day and age where we have access to millions upon millions of opinions with just a click of a button in a matter of moments. Scrolling through Facebook, scrolling through uh, the news headlines, reading blogs, all the media that comes at us, opinion after opinion after opinion, all trying to shift, all trying to sway, all with some slant, with some angle, so many voices. It's easy to get lost in the mix. And yet, God, we know. And as a church, we're gathered here this morning because we know your word, your voice, your opinion is the one we need. Your view on reality is not tainted by sin. It's not insufficient due to finitude and smallness. You see life as it truly is. You see the world as it truly is. You see we as we truly are. And you speak into that. You bring healing. You bring life. You bring light. You bring the the, the gospel of grace. And you show the way forward. And so this morning, God, it's my prayer that you would let me get out of the way. I don't want to be another one of those voices, another one of those mere opinions. God, I want you to speak to us through the scriptures. That's why we're here. So would you help me by your Holy Spirit? And would you help us all to hear your word? Have hearts ready to receive it. And lives to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay. So just to kind of catch us up very quickly. Uh, we've had a few weeks in between. I actually uh, spent one week, uh, I think it was maybe now three weeks ago, on this text that we're looking at again this morning, verses 1 through 4. I, I, I tackled them uh, one time already, and I'm going to be coming at it from a different angle uh, here now this morning. Um, last time, if you were here, you, you may recall we focused in really on verses 1 through like the first part of verse 3. And so consequently, our discussion kind of kind of centered in on this idea of these temptations that are sure to come, these temptations to sin that are all around us. And 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 we talked about kind of landed on this idea that what Jesus says here, because of these temptations to sin, because of uh, the war that we are in as Christians now in this world, spiritually speaking, we ought to, we need to, we have to be paying attention to ourselves. That's what Jesus says there at the beginning of verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. In view of all the temptations round about. 
And I close that message out by trying to give us a few examples. What, what would it look like to pay attention to ourselves? If, if, the, if the situation is as serious and severe as Jesus is saying, and we need to be on guard, we need to be watching ourselves, what does that look like? And one of the um, suggestions that I gave us was, hey, listen, we need to be making space in our lives for community with other Christians. That one of the ways we can pay attention to ourselves is actually to be engaging in community with other believers who are also kind of on alert and are ready and willing to not only uh, watch themselves, but watch me because of the blinding nature of sin. Uh, we need one another to kind of be on the matter with us, to be caring and alert, uh, not just for ourselves, but for uh, others in the church as well. I can't tell you how many times things that I thought I was cool and I mean, blind spots just being revealed because I'm in relationship with other people that love me well and can lead me to Jesus in and through it and I find healing for things I didn't even know I needed healing from. And so I said, and one of the ways that we uh, can pay attention to ourselves is actually by getting in community where we do that together. Now, I drew this out in particular from um, how Jesus' thought flows there in verse 3, and I want you to look at it because we're going to kind of move into verses 3 and 4 uh, this morning, and that, that these will be our focus. But I want you to see this. He moves immediately without stuttering in verse 3 there from Pay attention to yourselves to what? He goes on and says this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Pay attention to yourselves. Me, watch myself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So what we see right off the front is this idea of watching myself and watching, uh, watching my own tendencies to temptation and all this involves in Jesus's mind, at least being a part of a community where we're doing that with brothers and sisters in Christ, where I'm actually not just watching myself, but I'm watching you in love and you're watching me. What emerges immediately here, I think, is that we are in this discipleship thing together, that we are following Jesus together, that there cannot be any Lone Ranger Christian, or if there is, in fact, a guy who's going that way for a while, it is a very dangerous place to be, that we need one another uh, if we are to make it to glory. That's why Jesus doesn't just redeem individuals. He redeems a people you're born again, not just to kind of cruise on your own. You're born again. That's language of family. You're born again into the family of God. I mean, you might think of it like, uh, how good would it be to have a child born and then just left on the street? Like to fend for itself. No, that child needs to be born into a family who will then nurture care and they'll become committed members of. And that's what we start to see Jesus pointing us to here. And this is going to kind of lead into what I'm going to talk about this morning. Because I, I think um, for some of us, the idea of Christian community that is deep and meaningful, the idea of Christian community where uh, it's, it almost has kind of the flavor of the early church. For some of us, that may be a little frightening. 
Okay, admittedly so for various reasons, but for others of us, the idea of man, I'm in this tight knit community where we know and love one another. They know and love me and we're engaged following Jesus. That sounds exciting. That sounds inspiring. That sounds amazing. That has the flavor of sort of a Acts 2 early church sort of a thing where we're not just kind of, you know, showing up and passing by one another on a Sunday morning as we go along our separate ways, as we go on our separate ways. But instead, we are we're intricately engaged, intimately engaged with one another. That sounds good. That sounds inspiring. That sounds perhaps uh, like something we would want. But then... We keep reading in verses 3 and 4, and another perspective begins to surface on the matter. Suddenly, we're forced to face the unfortunate fact that life lived out in such Christian community, while it is still beautiful and desirable and even essential, it will most certainly be hard. Now, this is hinted at in the way Jesus moves, um, his flow of thought, the way it flows there in verses three and four. And I want to show you this because he moves immediately from this idea of paying, paying attention to ourselves and one another to talking about the necessity, the requirement, the importance of forgiveness. (laughs) And there's a lot packed into that flow of thought. Hey, listen, be a tight knit community. Watch out for one another. Love each other well. And you better learn how to forgive because you're going to hurt each other bad. You see, all of a sudden we go, oh, we might have this idealistic understanding of what the church will be and all this. And then we get in and we go, whoa, this place hurts. They hurt. I thought you're a Christian. What's going on here? And we get confused. I want you to look at verses three through four again to make sure you see this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What we catch here is that sin never occurs in a vacuum. It always occurs in a context, and it never just affects the individual. It affects all the people around about it. And so what we start to understand is that as we're engaged in one another's lives and helping one another follow Jesus and and shrug off the old man and put to death the flesh and and, and mortify sin and all these things that sound great, doing it together, what we come to realize is that one of the ways that's going to happen is you're going to sin against me and I'm going to sin against you. That's how we come to see, oh my goodness, that's not good. I don't just see your sin, I feel it. Did you catch that? It's not just sin out there somewhere. Verse four, he says, and if he sins, what against you? Such as, hey, I saw that over there. You know, I love you. Let's check on. It's like you just hurt me bad. That's how I came, became aware of, you know, the sin struggles in your life. That's how I'm going to help pay attention. I have to be able to navigate my own emotional struggles with what you just did to me as I try to help you forward in Jesus. We often notice the sin in others because it has offended and even wounded us. 
getting in close relationships with other believers means you're going to see and feel their remaining sin. Their temptation, their temptations are going to test you. Now, here's where, sadly, reality breaks in and and, and we realize, okay, the church is awesome as it is. And even when we read things like perhaps Acts 2 and we think of the early church, we get all excited. Uh, here's where reality breaks in and, and, and we recognize, wait a minute, it's still a family of, of, of struggling uh, sinners made saints in Jesus. And if you read the epistles and things, this becomes very plain. The, the rose colored glasses just get knocked right off as we go. Oh, my goodness. The early church is a mess. Kind of just like our church today. It's hard and they're hurting one another. And Paul is always writing. What are you guys doing? What is going on? I thought Jesus and the cross was supposed to be at the center. So we realize that deep, meaningful community, even in the church, is going to be hard. It's going to require a lot of us to forgive and in the midst of personal hurts and wounds to be able to love and lead one another to Jesus. You might be saying at this point, man, I... I thought, Nick, that the church was supposed to be the safe place. I thought, you know, I get sinned enough against out there in the world. (laughs) I, I, I thought I could come into the church and find people that would get me and love me and, 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 and nurture me back to life, not come and I I better gear up because I'm going to have to forgive people that are hurting me here too. I thought the church was supposed to be safe. And I say, yes and amen. The church is supposed to be a safe place, but not because it is a sinless place. The church is supposed to be a safe place, but that's not because it's a sinless place. I'll talk to you more about that in a moment. But think about it. We ought to know right away that the church is not fully safe and without sin and all this stuff. Because why? Because because I'm here. And you're here like you bring your stuff. I mean, let me let me just newsflash. You're part of the problem. right? Like this stuff is part of the problem in me. Like we are sinners en route to glory, slowly growing in grace and maturing in Christ. We are part of the problem, though, because there's the remaining stuff in us. And therefore, when you bring a group of of, of, of saints uh, still struggling with sin, you're going to have issues. It's going to require forgiveness and and maturity and all these things. And it's actually uh, some of this rubbing and, 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 and grinding against one another that actually starts to encourage and enhance the process of sanctification. It's part of the process of growing. So we don't run away and go to another church where everyone's perfect. We press in and go, wait a minute. God is going to use this for my good, for your good. If we can be mature enough. Now, here's why I say that the church is still actually supposed to be, I think, the safest place on the planet. Uh, I know that and some of you guys know all too well. That's not always the case that you guys have experienced some massive wounds from church communities and things like that. You, you know more than I do what it means to enter into a community and find out, whoa, I'm going to really need to learn how to forgive after that. <laughs> 
the pastor did what with who? I'm going to really need to learn how to forgive if I'm ever going to come back into a church again. Not just this one, but any, right? So you guys know about this. I say at the same time that the church should still be the safest place on the planet. Why? What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Though the church is not a sinless place, it ought to still be the safest place because at the foundation At the core of this community, there ought to be a commitment to forgive a covenant of grace, if you will, that binds together every member that's a part of it, because at the center of the church community is the cross of Christ, right? Jesus stands wounds and all at the center of the church. And therefore what we have here is not safe because it's sinless, but safe because we have mercy and grace and we're committed to the one who shows us mercy and grace. And in him, we're showing that to others. We're showing that to one another that we have a place actually where even though we're going to press in and see one another's junk, we don't have to, when we see it, push away from the table. Or bear grudges, burn bridges. i got to make sure I don't hit any instruments here. Uh, we don't have to do that. Instead, we can press in like our Savior is pressed in towards us. We could talk about the hurt, the ways that it offended, the sin that we're worried is taking root in their life. And we can walk with them towards the cross and the Savior and we can see change. See, we can commit to one another not because we're perfect. I finally found some people that I can like. I can hang with these folks. But instead, because we have Jesus, we can move towards those who are imperfect with love and commitment. That's what the church ought to be. And this was all introduction. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) Some people, that'd be the end of their message. How long was that? Whoops. Uh, Okay. Uh, So this morning, what I want to do is dial in on verses three through four. And I want to talk about forgiveness. I want to talk about this thing that's supposed to keep the church together. This thing that if you're going to do meaningful life with other believers and and grow in Jesus, you're going to have to learn this. That's why Jesus brings this up. It's going to be an important aspect of your Christian life, whether you want to, to learn it or not. And so I'm going to bring three things out about forgiveness. First, the rebuke of forgiveness. Second, the extent of forgiveness. And third, the way of forgiveness forgiveness so um first the rebuke of forgiveness i'm going to try to go probably fastest through these first uh two but we'll we'll see how it goes um the bottom line here is that forgiveness can't even begin to really kind of make its way out until we actually start to talk about the offense with the person who offended right like you, as long as we're kind of brushing things under the rug or kind of pulling away or whatever it is from the person and, and too scared to address it, we can't even begin to get this forgiveness thing started. We're not even talking about it. It's going to be some of our tendencies, right? It's just to kind of pull away. I don't even want to say anything. That wouldn't be this paying attention to ourselves and one another that Jesus is calling us to, right? And so the first thing we have to learn is, wait, we actually, Jesus is going to say, need to talk about this with one another. Now, he uses this word rebuke, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And I know that we're prone to misunderstand this word and this idea. And so I wanted to make clear a few things first, what, what this is not and what it is. Okay. Uh, so first, what it is not, um, this rebuke that Jesus is speaking about here is not, let's be clear. It is not a shoot from the hip. You frustrate me. You're on my nerves and I'm going to let you hear it. Here comes an earful from me. Jesus said rebuke, right? That's not what he's talking about here. We are not in this uh, word rebuke to understand, you know, all the other biblical principles are somehow being overrided and we just get to kind of say what's on our mind and let you have it. There are so many other biblical principles that we that were given uh, for how to handle conflict and personal hurts and wounds. Uh, and I want to make that plain. So it's not saying just kind of shoot from the hip. It's not as if now uh, this somehow overrides, for example, what the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 1911, that it's a glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory. Not sweeping under the rug because you're too scared to deal with it, but patient, long-suffering. I'm not just going to bring out every little thing that I see the moment that I see it, but I'm going to prayerfully consider. And I'm going to overlook. Because that's what our Savior does. That's what our Father does. So it's a glory to overlook an offense. And yet there may come a time where because you love them and because you care about the relationship and their relationship with God, you need to say something. It's also not that this idea, this idea of rebuke also is not overriding, for example, what uh, we read elsewhere from Jesus, where he says, hey, listen, before you talk about, you know, someone else's sin or the the speck that you see in, in their eye. Right. How about you deal with the big beam or the big log that's coming out of your eye? So there still should be this mark of humility. This mark of, of, of self-awareness and, and, and self-examination. That before we're just kind of shooting down one another or even bringing up a matter, we're going, wait a minute, what's my part in it and where am I? So all of these things are still underneath and, and, and guiding uh, this idea of rebuke. It's not as if Jesus is getting, giving us a like, free pass to say what's on our mind and let them have it. Okay, there's this humility, there's this self-reflection, there's this slowness, this patience. And yet. There is still at times a call to enter in and talk in love. So what exactly is it then um, to rebuke? Because I know and I said this, I think last time this word rebuke, right? I don't think there's anyone in this room that likes that word or even what I mean, personally, I, I don't even want to be seen as as one who rebukes the word, at least in our modern uh, in our modern sense of it really grates on our ears. And here's here's kind of, I think, the the nuances that we get from this. We, we, we kind of picture in our minds the long robed Pharisee guy standing on the soapbox kind of going oh i see that and i see that and that's no good kind of looking down the nose right the condemnation thing that's what we feel it's like it's like the smug self-righteous kind of word that's what we think of at least i do maybe i'm just weird when i think of rebuke um but I said last time, again, you've got to remember, uh, when we come to our Bibles, we're, we're looking at a Greek text, ultimately, that's translated into the English. 
Okay. And that Greek word that's used there can easily, and, and, and in the, the lexicons, one of the options within the semantic range is to warn. Okay. Now warn to me sounds nicer. It sounds like I see you're in a dangerous spot. Get down, you know, get away from the ledge. Get away, get out of the street. Come. I love you. It's a, it's a cry of compassion. That's what this idea of rebuke is. Rebuke. We hear get out of there. You sinner, you know, warn we hear, come in here. What are you doing out there in the cold? What are you doing out there? But that's really, I think the heart that Jesus has when he's calling us to rebuke someone who is in sin. When we rebuke or warn a brother or sister, we're not saying I'm better than you. We're saying I love you. We're not moving away from a person. We're moving towards them. We're not slapping them in the face. We're coming in for an embrace. You hearing that? So I wonder where you are even now, if we were just to hit pause on this. Um, I know we all have kind of our tendencies when it comes to conflict or people that have sinned against us and how we handle that, right? Some of us, like I said, maybe at the beginning, we kind of like to brush it under the rug, not deal with it. We call it Christian forgiveness and grace, but really we just don't want to enter in because it's, it's too scary or it's, we don't want to stir the water, whatever it may be. And that's going to come out in one way or another. Either you're going to explode later or you're going to slowly kind of ghost the person and pull away entirely withholding good. It's not going to be good. At the end of the day, we might say we're doing that for the good of the other person, but it's actually typically more self-concern. But then you have the other side. And this is why, I mean, we got to know ourselves. I'm more scared of this side personally, especially with me. There's the people who are just ready to enter in. It's my duty as a Christian to tell you all I see. I'm sorry. Jesus said it. There's the list. (laughs) I'll be praying for you. You know, like some of us are that way and we got to know, gosh, okay, where am I in this? Are there relationships that perhaps God is calling me to speak into because I love them, because I actually want to move towards them? And it's hurting the relationship with me. And it's also perhaps probably hurting their relationship with God. I'm going to speak. There may be some that need to need to speak. And there may be others who you've been riding too hard. And it's actually not them who need to repent, but you. So just leave that for you to consider. Number two, the extent of forgiveness. So we see there the rebuke of forgiveness. Now the extent of it. Um, When it comes to being sinned against and responding with forgiveness instead of with, uh, you know, vindictiveness and things, uh, animosity, uh, we have to admit, right, this is really hard. This is really challenging. This is costly. This is not fun. We don't like this. Forgiving is not kind of doesn't come natural, right? All you have to do is watch cow kids play. They don't go, oh, you just took my toy. You know, that's fine. I'll wait until you're done. They go, that's my... You know, they're great. Whatever. That's what's in us is that wasn't fair. Right. And we want to make it right now. So we got to know when Jesus is calling us to forgive towards this posture of forgiveness. We're not going to like it. And because of that, if we kind of look into our hearts as we're kind of engaging situations where we've been hurt, sinned against, we're going to always be looking for loopholes. 
Sorry to say it, but it's true. We're always going to be looking for ways out, ways to justify the anger, the frustration, the hardness that we have, ways to kind of wiggle out the fine print that allows me to kind of escape from this call to forgive fully, freely from the heart. People that have hurt me so deeply. Two of these loopholes actually appear right in our text. You might try to grab a hold of them. Oh, I see Jesus calling us to forgive, but what about that? And what about that? Woo! He's not talking about me. Let me show you two of these loopholes. Now, let me just try to dismantle them and call us uh, really into the way of Christ and show you the extent to which we're, we're, we're being asked to forgive here because it is crazy. I know. <laughs> but it's also amazing. Potential loophole number one, I'd call it um, forgiveness with limits, limited forgiveness. Okay, we, 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 we like to see, we try to see, oh, maybe there's a limit to how much I need to forgive. Okay, it's not just kind of this limitless thing, this unlimited thing, this kind of just get out of jail free card that I give to everyone and they can keep in their back pocket, use it whenever they want. No, no, no. There, there's a limit to this, right, Jesus? There's a limit. There's an extent, and it stops somewhere, and then I can be bitter and angry. I don't have to want to see them ever again. And we look at verse 4, for example, and we see this loophole there. Um, If he sins against you, Jesus says, seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So at first read, we we look at that, and we we maybe feel a little bit relieved. Okay, there's a number attached to this commitment. Okay, all right, seven times. I can get through seven, but if you go eight on me, it's over, right? I mean, Jesus said it, seven, okay, eight, done. All right, Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to be a good Christian. Let's do this, right? So we try to see these limits, but let me quickly here give you a few reasons as to why this is most certainly not what Jesus is meaning. First, I wonder if you noticed that these seven times we've been sinned against and are called to forgive. Are not, we're not talking about the, through the course of the relationship, okay? <laughs> Look at it carefully. He says seven times in one day. Like they get a restart every day on like the same issue. It, let, let me tell you something. If you sin against me the same sort of thing two or three times in a day, I mean, I'm done with you, right? Like we just talked about this. Like, no, you don't get to, you know, steal my money again. No, you don't get to, you know, whatever it was. Like, it's over. But he's saying seven times in a day. So already we have this, oh, that's significant. How many of us would still be going, yeah, come back in. Yeah, we love you. Gosh, I know fighting sin is hard and it's alive and it's at work in our hearts. And you repent, I forgive. Right? But then there's more to this as well. And that's when we realize that in um, in uh, Israel in that day at this time and things, the number seven was more significant than it may be for us. It's not just a number. It was actually biblically, theologically speaking, it's kind of charged. And, and, and this idea of completeness is kind of captured in it. So you got the seven days of creation and other things like that, where it's got this idea of wholeness or completion. So already for the Jew hearing seven, there's this idea, not that, oh, okay, that's the extent to which I must forgive, but rather, well, this is a life that is marked in its entirety by forgiveness, a a forgiving posture, right? 
There's something more to it. And then beyond even this, um, there is kind of something uh, about this that's going to amplify it even further when we see uh, Peter approach Jesus on a similar matter in Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Peter rolls on Jesus and he says, listen, uh, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? I mean, give me the number, <laughs> Jesus, give me the number because I'll do it because I love you. But my goodness, I hope that the number is small. And uh, we read Jesus's response in verse 22. I do not say to you seven times, but 70, 70 times seven is what he says. So in another scenario, he just amplifies it. I says, let's be clear. We're not just talking. When I say seven, I'm talking not just about a number. I'm talking about 70 times seven. Or in other words, again, it's not a calculation for Peter to do 70 times. Let me pull up my calculator. No, this is he's saying this forgiveness just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. There's no end to it. You see, we're looking for limits. And what Jesus is actually doing is saying, Man, this forgiveness ought to be limitless. Which if you let that land on you, it's convicting, it's challenging, perhaps even troubling. Just as we cannot outsin God's grace, so another person should not be able to outsin our forgiveness. Potential loophole number two, then. Okay, so we say, all right, all right, all right, all right. Nick, I see what you're saying. Uh, perhaps our forgiveness needs to be unlimited. But that doesn't mean that our forgiveness is unconditional. In fact, if I'm reading this text correctly, Nick, there is a condition built into this call to forgive. And that sounds pretty good to me. I can work with the condition that's here. I don't have to forgive everyone. But if someone does this one thing, okay, well, then I guess I need to. There's a condition to it. It's forgiveness with conditions. And this loophole shows up in verses 3 and 4. Let me show it to you now. I wonder if you already saw it. If, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If I mean, there's a condition there and the mistaken thought then that we are all too happy to, to, to move towards is this idea that, okay, all right, all right, all right. If someone sins against me and they come back groveling, they come back hands and knees, sackcloth and ashes, singing my praises, you know, whatever it may be, apologizing. Well, then maybe I guess I need to forgive then I'd be willing. But if they don't, then I won't. I'm just following what Jesus says. If you repent, I must forgive. If you don't, I don't have to. And what we see is that we use this, um, this apparent sort of condition here as a way of justifying ourselves. And our nursing of bitterness, our hardening of hearts, we don't have to. They don't say sorry. They don't get my forgiveness, right? We use it as a way of justifying an unforgiving spirit. Now, let me, there's a lot I could say on this, and I know there may even be different opinions. But let me at least say this. In, in one sense, 
It is true. In one sense, it is true that the forgiveness, uh, the, the, the kind of the fullest expression of forgiveness uh, cannot be realized without repentance from the offender. All right. Because forgiveness has built into its trajectory, it's, it's heading towards restoration, reconciliation, coming together, that embrace. That's kind of the trajectory that forgiveness is on. So, no, it's true. You cannot have kind of the fullest expression, the final embrace of forgiveness without repentance from the offended party. But, and here's what we have to make clear, this does not mean... That we get to, in the meantime, kind of nurse an unforgiving spirit, cultivate an unforgiving spirit. It doesn't mean that we get to be angry at them so long as they don't come saying sorry. This, for example, is what Paul means when he says this in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Did you hear that? That's really important. You see, he's saying there's no unforgiving spirit. There's no vindictive spirit here. No way. He's saying, bless, give, do good, even to your enemies. But I know you can't necessarily bring the whole racial relationship back to where you want it to be without them forgiving. That's why he says, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You're not going to be able to make them repent, but you can in your heart do the hard work of God. I release them. From my prison, I, 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 from my part, I, I, I forgive them. God, would you please let them come and want restoration and want reconciliation? I can't make them come, but I can be ready and willing and wanting to forgive in its fullness. You see that? I go after the people, not sit back and wait. Hmm, you didn't get low enough. I don't see any tears. <laughs> Is that repentance genuine? All right. I guess I must forgive. No. Pursuing. Blessing. There's no. You with me? This is Stephen or Stephen. While his Jewish brothers are bashing his head in with rocks in Acts 7. I mean, he's talking to them about the Lord of life who was crucified and raised for the forgiveness of their sins. And they go, we hate this and we hate you. And they decide to stone him. And as they are bashing his face in with rocks, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, Imagine this. I, mean, I know you guys have had some horrible things done to you, but head bashed in with rocks. He breathes his, that's his last, that's his last line. That's the end of the script. Forgive them as they kill me. You see, there's, there's no animosity. There's not fullness of reconciliation. There's not the fullest expression of forgiveness there. But the heart is there. God, I want to see that. And he's just learning from his Savior, right? 
He's just learning from Jesus himself, who, as he was hanging lifeless on the cross, right, in utter agony, nail pierced, you know, thorns in his temples, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not Father, get them. Sick of them. Father, forgive them. I love them. Jesus can't make a person repent, but he can make the way, and he has, for their forgiveness if they would. Do you hear that? Our job is not to make everything right, but our job is to release them from our prison and to say, listen, the family room door is open. I can't make you come in. But I want you there. Now, asterisk, footnote, I know that there are abusive situations and other things where you don't just open your door to the person who's done X, Y, or Z to you, okay? So I recognize this takes on different forms. Please don't blow that out into something else. I'm talking mainly about the heart. Even for the worst abuser, our heart ought to be, man, I love God, I want to see him forgiven. By you, they are forgiven by me. I love them. I would love for reconciliation. Not, I never want to see them again. That's going to do more harm to you than to them. All right. Two loopholes. Hopefully you can see, okay, wait a minute. As crazy as it sounds, this forgiveness is called to be unlimited. As crazy as it sounds, this forgiveness is called to be in some ways unconditional. And you look at this and you go, wow, I, are you kidding me? I don't want to do this. This sounds impossible to me. The wounds that I have, the wounds I've incurred over the years, not just from people outside the church, but people within it, they go too deep. Like the hurt is still there. It may be something that happened years ago, but it feels to you like it happened yesterday. And you go, forgive? Let him out of my prison? Open my family room door? No! After what they've done? No! I don't want to. But perhaps, you see what Jesus is saying here, and you go, Okay, maybe I do, but I have no idea where to begin. I have no idea how to even make a start at this whole forgiveness thing. What what do I do? How do I start to even cultivate this sort of a heart? I got three things for us to consider. These are three things. Now we're looking at the, the third kind of heading on your hand out there, the way of forgiveness. I got three things that can help me walk in this way. It, it may help you to see... I'm essentially talking about here three kind of glances along a timeline. We're going to kind of glance back to the past, a glance that's kind of in the present right here, and a glance that's towards the future. I know when you're in the middle of conflict, it is hard to, to, to keep a forgiving spirit. So I'm just saying, look back, look down, look forward. That's, that's one way you could hopefully remember what I'm about to say. The first truth i think that marks this way of forgiveness that we need to get deep in our bones is this idea that god has forgiven me i mean this is the starting point you guys this is the starting point god has forgiven me now 
I mentioned earlier that text where Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times? I mean, let me add this up. How many times do I have to forgive if someone sins against me? Well, Jesus gives the answer 70 times seven, but we have not yet looked at the rationale that he goes on to share. He gives the answer, but then he goes on to explain, here's why your forgiveness ought to be limitless. Here's why. And he tells a parable to get at at why. And I want to just read it to you. You've maybe if you have a background in church, you've heard this before, but it is worth uh, settling in on again for a moment. He says this to Peter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes or wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So he gave the answer 70 times seven, and then he gives the rationale for that answer in this parable. And the key to that parable is actually found in something that's probably lost on our modern ears. The key to the parable is found uh, in the difference between the amounts owed. So this master really representing God, right? We understand uh, has the servant who owes him. We read uh, 10,000 talents. And you just go, what is that? I mean, this guy has a lot of talent. He could, he could make it on, on AGT or whatever. No, a uh, talent is 20 years wages. And he's got, he owes this guy 20,000 or 10,000 of those. So what we're talking about in modern terms is about $6 billion. <laughs> it's hyperbole to get at the point that you're never going to pay this back, man. Never. This guy owes six billion dollars to his master. Master says, pay up. He says, I can't please with him. Okay, I'll show you mercy and I'll wipe it all away. And then this servant finds one of his buddies who owes him uh, what we read to be a hundred denarii. A hundred. Well, that sounds more than 20. But a denarii is is just a day's wage. So what we're talking about here is still a significant sum. And I love that. It's actually twelve thousand dollars, perhaps modern uh, in modern understanding. I love that because have you guys been hurt significantly by people like 12,000 bucks? That's worth kind of, hey, pay up, please. Have you guys been hurt significantly by other people? Yes. But the point is here, their offense and what they owe you is nothing compared to what you owed God in your sin. And he did not come demanding payment. He came and offered his son in your place to pay.
pay it in full for you. If we let that settle deep in our bones, that changes the way we approach the people who have offended us. I've often used the analogy. I think it's kind of wired into us to kind of relate on the horizontal level with other people according to these scales, right? Like you give to me. Okay. I give to you. All right. And we kind of, we work on that way. You take from me. You owe me. You sin against me. You owe me. And we get worked up on these scales and in our relationships, we kind of have this sort of thing going. And we know that person, we treat them a certain way because, listen, they owe. I mean, I gave them all this. Put something on the on the scale, man. But when we go vertical with this and we come to consider our relationship with God, that's when everything changes because we really the scales were irreparably uh, not in our favor. We could never pay him back. And yet he drops his son on the scale. And pays in our place. And so we look at that and we just go, no, no way. I mean, grace breaks the scales and now when we look at others what we see is not man what you owe me and what i need to take from you and all we see what we can give paul talks about his life because he'd been so moved by the gospel he talks about himself as a debtor to others because you have so much grace coming to you now i'm i'm a debtor i'm indebted to those around me not because they have put me in 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 their debt But because God has given me so much, my call is to give regardless of whether they take and take and take and even eventually take my life. Changes everything when we know that God has forgiven us. Second thing I would say, second truth, I kind of call that one like the glance to the past of look at the cross, if you will. Now, the second thing that I would bring out here is, is looking into the present moment and this idea that God is working for good. God is working for good. How, how do I start to get a heart to forgive? Well, actually, this is an important truth to understand that God is working for good, even in the hardship. I actually didn't originally think about this until I was reading through the book of Genesis. And I come to the end of that book where there's a story, maybe some of you are familiar, uh, about the guy Joseph. And there are many remarkable things about Joseph's story, but perhaps one of the most remarkable comes at the very end when when he forgives his brothers and there's this reconciliation. The forgiveness is what's so remarkable about this. Let me just briefly share, you know, catch you back up to speed with that story. Joseph has a dream. All his brothers are going to bow to him someday. Naturally, these guys don't like this, you know, but instead of just kind of merely giving him noogies or swirlies or whatever you did to your siblings when they bothered you, they kind of take it a step, maybe a little too far they decide they want to like get rid of him forever so they drop him in a pit and they go oh maybe that's a little too harsh let's just sell him into slavery so joseph then is carried off into egypt where what we kind of follow the story he he's initially kind of you know things are not going well but then he finds favor with pharaoh and he's sitting at his right hand famine hits the land but joseph's uh, wisdom helps them there in egypt to have storehouses of grain all the nations start coming to Egypt for help. Joseph's brothers come as well. Because they need food. 20 years or so have passed. They don't even recognize him. But Joseph recognizes them. And he just loses it. 
There's a lot more to the story, but the long, uh, long and short of it is that Joseph embraces them and he forgives them. These guys that were going to leave him in a pit to die, sold him into slavery, never wanted to see him again. When Joseph sees him again, embraces, forgives, loves, celebrates. And we say, why? How? That doesn't make sense. And the brothers don't get it either. They think he's just kind of playing a game. And they go, oh my gosh, it's over. That's Joseph. It's over for us. Um, He's got this sort of authority in Egypt. It's over for us. He's going to kill us. I know it. Joseph, seeing that they're worried about this, says this. and, and, And in his response here, we get a key to how we can begin to forgive like him. Genesis 50, 19 to 21, he says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Speaking kindly to the ones who just abandoned you you're there, face to face, all those things you and I would maybe have wanted to say through the years, like how could he comforts them? He speaks kindly to them. He says, man, I love you. He embraces them. He weeps. He rejoices. And he says, here's how I'm doing this. I know that though you meant evil, God was at work in the middle of all of that for good. There's this confidence that he has that even in the midst of the hardship, God is doing good things. If we would just have eyes to see it. I know some of you just say, good thing, I don't see it. I'm just saying, we read the scripture. Does a pit to Joseph in that moment feel good? Does slavery or the years he spent in prison and all these other things feel good? No. I'm telling you, we're giving these stories in Scripture, not to mention the cross. Where does it feel good? No, but is God working good there? Absolutely. We're given these windows into who God is and what He's doing, so that when we face horrible abuse or abandonment or being sinned against, we can go, you know what? I know God is still in this. And because of that, I don't have to kind of get lost in the cycle of vengeance and other things and swirl off into that. I am released and free to love. Because I know my God will make good on it in the end. God is working for good. Last thing that I'll say is this. God will make the wrong right. And here's kind of that glance to the future I'm talking about. So God has forgiven me. God is working for good. God will make all the wrong right. With this now, we look towards the future and the last day, the day of judgment. It's the day when God will make all wrongs right. Now, as you know, many in our day have a distaste for this idea of a God who judges. Um, and they may even say that, gosh, if you believe in that sort of God, uh, God you're going to become the, the sort of judgmental Christians that I know. I mean, that's probably what makes you so nasty is you believe in a God who's going to judge and send people to hell for their sin and all this. Like, come on. No wonder you guys are crusty and angsty and angry all the time. 
You believe in that kind of... No, God is a God of love. Stop that. And we know historically that, yes, there are times where the church has abused uh, some of these doctrines and they use it to justify violence and vengeance and other things. But actually, if we look at the scriptures, the doctrine of God's coming judgment, the doctrine that God alone is going to be the one to make all things right at the end of time is actually what, according to the Bible, should free us up to not worry about making it right anymore in our personal relationships and get the skills correct. It's actually what frees us up to love those people who hurt us severely because we know he's going to bring justice for us in the end. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 12 again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. What that means, I don't have time to talk about. But he does say this, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have more for us here, but I, I think I am going to pull out. There's this amazing quote from a guy by the name of, of Miroslav Volf, and he's seen some radical violence in his day. And he says, listen, the, we get all worked up about, um, um, you know, a God who's going to wield the sword in judgment someday. And, and we get all upset and think that's not uh, that doesn't compute or comport with his love. And he says, listen, if God, uh, if God is truly loving and he sees all the sort of violence and all the injustice that's going on, man, of course, that's what he's going to do. He says the only way, the only place that you can kind of even conjure up that idea that that um, God is love and he would never judge anyone is like here in the quiet suburbs where everything is peaceful and good. He says, if you've seen the violence I've seen where people are just raped on the streets and family members' throats are slit and all that. The only way you don't get sucked into the cycle of violence and vengeance is if you believe there's a God who will make it right in the end. Otherwise, how in the world do you even begin to love your enemies in that context? He says the God who will make all wrong right is the only way to break free. It's the only way to truly forgive. Because you don't need to plead your case. You know, God will do it for you. So we say all of this, and, and I know coming out of it would go, gosh, it still feels impossible. I don't know if I have such a thing in me in light of what's been done to me. I don't get it. And I love how the disciples respond. I love this. I didn't read it in the beginning, but verse 5, they come out of this whole thing and listen to what they say. And this is just where it will end. They say this. The apostles said to the Lord, verse 5, Luke 17, increase our faith. They hear the call to forgiveness in the midst of conflict and and, and, and Christian community that's going to hurt and and, and, and being sinned against. And they go, let's increase my faith. I don't think I could do this. You know, that's just the right response to have because we can't. But we're called to come and and abide and, and press into the one who can and already has. The one who trusted in the father's love for him, the one who knew that even there on the cross, God was his father was up to good. The one who knew that his father would make it right in the end and vindicate him as he rose him up from the dead. I mean, that same one lives in us. And as Jesus has forgiven us. Or as God has forgiven us in Christ, 
so we in him through him can start to walk in that forgiveness with us god increase our faith so let's pray Lord, thank you for your word i know it's a challenging one today and i know uh, Lord, that we want to nurse our bitterness and nurse our, our, our anger sometimes and keep people in our prison. But you want to set not just those individuals free, but us. You want us to walk in the freedom of the children of God where we can love even our enemy, bless even those who curse us. Through the gospel and your spirit, would you do that? Would you work that out in us? Would you increase our faith? Would you help us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.